As a medical professional, you're probably consumed by your work. Because of that, you likely miss out on big opportunities to protect and grow the wealth you work so hard for. Luckily, through passive real estate investing, you can place your capital in the hands of trusted syndicators who do all the legwork while you sit back and let your money work for you. Syndicators like Ascent Equity Group. Ascent Equity Group is led by three medical professionals turned full-time real estate investors who have secured a quarter of a billion dollars in assets in just three years. And their latest opportunity, Sunrise and Chandler, is open now. Sunrise and Chandler is an exciting 177-unit value-add multifamily opportunity in the affluent city of Chandler, Arizona. This Class B asset in a Class A location was secured at a significant discount and is already cash flowing out of the gate, with 89% of the units still in need of renovation. Sunrise and Chandler is close to meeting its capital raising goal and will be closing soon. So if you'd like to learn more, visit ascentequitygroup.com forward slash best deal to schedule a call. That's A-S-C-E-N-T equitygroup.com slash best deal. This opportunity is open to accredited investors only. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Bank on a contingency and make it at least 10%. I tell you to go 15%, especially if it's your first deal. I think so many people go in trying to create a deal and they go in undercapitalized and then they get caught. And that's syndicators and individual deal operators alike. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hello, Best Ever listeners. Welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Ash Patel and I'm with today's guest, Mark McGuire. Mark is joining us from Lansdale, Pennsylvania. He is the Chief Investment Officer at Hearth Fire Capital, which invests in self-storage syndication. Mark's portfolio consists of being a GP on 20 residential units and an LP in 12 syndications across multifamily, industrial, hospitality, and self-storage. Mark, thank you for joining us, and how are you today? Doing great, Ash. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure, Mark. Before we get started, can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Yeah. So my background is actually started in real estate at a young age. When I was 17, was working as the assistant to the maintenance guy at a class C apartment portfolio and just learned the real estate business and the construction business kind of from the ground up as being the laborer's labor. Worked my way up from that, realized I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. Didn't make enough money for what I was wanting to do with my life and decided to go into sales and real estate sales was the path that I chose and continued to build that. And then as I started to really earn some solid income, it was all about how much could I save and where can I get paid without having to work going on January 1st, starting from scratch. So I made it into buying my own units and then buying bigger units after I bought singles, started moving to quadplexes, and then I started participating as an LP in syndications because I realized I didn't have enough bandwidth in my day to run my business from a sales perspective and then also operate the way I wanted to on the multifamily side. So went to LPs, just started learning, getting access to commercial real estate knowledge and looking at what I needed to be paying attention to, to optimize performance in my own personal portfolio, and then took it over to the GP side, which is where I'm at today on self-storage. 
Mark, you mentioned you wanted to make money without working. How do you feel about that today? Well, I'm still definitely working. I don't want to get it twisted. But every year now, I have a good amount of passive income. I'm not 100% financially free just yet, but wanted to get to a point where the majority of my bills, if not all my bills were covered, and I'm just about there. Mark, you said you became an LP in your own business. What does that mean? So I became a limited partner in syndications prior to actually joining forces with Sergio and Corinne Altamare with Hearthfire. I was participating as just the equity. So a limited partner, you're, all you're doing is writing the check and you're contributing the equities to somebody else who's running the physical day-to-day on the project. Got it. And you were an LP in multifamily, industrial, hospitality, and self-storage. Can we dive into those LP investments? Yeah. So I started actually in multifamily syndication because multifamily was kind of what my background was. So that was what I was most comfortable with, but I didn't have the balance sheet and the net worth position. And I just didn't have the confidence to really take it on myself. So started with multifamily. And once you started to learn what people were looking for, how they were pulling the levers to create value, that was when I started to branch out into other opportunities. And a lot of it was finding people. I'm part of GoBundance and I got connected with some really good operators in other asset classes. And that's really where I started to branch out beyond multifamily into hospitality and industrial and then ultimately self-storage. What was your hospitality investment? So I am invested with a group called Accountable Equity. Really great people, great team. It's Josh McCallan and Scott Bendis and Melanie McCallan. They're just awesome people. And they buy small, independently owned wedding venues. Their business model is operates around wedding venues. And I had just gotten married at the time. So I could attest to how inelastic the demand was and how expensive it was as well. And what they're focused on is finding wedding venues that have a ton of organic wedding leads, but have a dismal conversion rate. And basically they can go and bring their culture and bring their sales process into an organization that's generating a ton of leads and then just really rip the conversion and turn it into an incredibly profitable business. Interesting. And what was your industrial investment? So I got partnered with a couple of guys in my area where I live that they were acquiring last mile industrial stores. And we started doing that in 2019. I had another friend of mine who invested with them a couple of years prior. And these guys, young guys, and I think they have one of the largest industrial holdings in the last mile space in the tri-state area now, but they bought buildings that were in locations where they wouldn't be approved today, or these locations were too expensive to actually go and tear down what was existing and then build new. So they were able to come in They put a program together to repurpose these units and they understood the market to go out to the right tenant base where they could take these buildings that were largely undervalued with people who were a lot of times owner users. And they'd go and they'd restructure the lease, put everything over to triple net lease formats. And then they just restructure the contracts and create a ton of value. What was the hold period on those investments and what was the return? So from the hold period perspective, everyone's different. Those industrial projects I've been in have been 18 months to two years. The hospitality projects that I'm in, there's different ownership shares that you can purchase in that type of an investment. The share that I chose to purchase was more of a perpetual equity. So I'm the last one to get paid out, but I'll retain my equity even when they refinance us out relative to the total project. So I'm still in that project that's been now... First one I did was in December of 2018. 
that's great. You got all your money back and you're still in the deal. Yeah. Well, to be transparent, I didn't get it back yet. It will be the plan. Hospitality debt's just been tr- tough. I mean, the debt market for those types of assets has been hard to come by. Yeah. Mark, you went into real estate sales. How did you go from real estate sales to where you are today? Man, real estate sales is a hustle game. It's long hours. It's a real big ramp up period and you're working. It's all day, every day, weekends, nights. For me, fear was my motivator. I was fearful of ever being controlled and not having the ability to pay for the things that I wanted. And then having to settle for life circumstances because I couldn't afford what I truly wanted. So for me, for better or for worse, I recognized that fear was one of my strongest motivating factors and forces and the fear of not having control. So residential real estate put control in my hands and gave me the ability to earn as much as I wanted or as little as I wanted. And it gave me the keys to the car to drive it. So I was fortunate. I caught residential real estate in a great up market. I got in 2012. I'd be lying to you if I said if everything was due to just me being some crazy, brilliant person. I worked hard. I worked really hard, but I had good luck. And how did you get connected with Hearthfire Capital? So actually, I got connected with Hearthfire through GoBundance. I actually run the Philly chapter locally. And Sergio happened to join the group a couple of years ago. And he and I just had a really good rapport and got along great. And my family had had a multifamily portfolio that I managed the P&L for. And we were looking at 1031 Exchange, some of our lesser performing properties. And when you're 1031 Exchange, you have certain timeframes that you fall within that you have to meet. Otherwise, you compromise the exchange period and then you end up having to pay the tax on the gain. So one of the options that we'd come across was a Delaware Statutory Trust, which is like a giant industrialized syndication. The yields are low because they just get feed all the way down, unfortunately. But we came across a self-storage portfolio in Michigan, and this was like 2017, 2018. I remember looking at the dynamics, thinking to myself, I don't know anything about self-storage, but this seems like it'd be cool. And then I happened to meet Sergio a year or so later. He showed me the world of self-storage in the beginning and really showed me why he liked it, what was really particularly attractive with the low operating expense ratios and all of the not having tenants, but respect to landlord-tenant law, it was lien law. So I'd kind of had my eye on self-storage for a while. And then he had an opportunity that they had sourced and they were raising equity for. And I brought my equity. I originally joined as an LP, just right in equity. And I brought a couple other people that I invest together with a lot of times. And Serge was just like, hey, I need someone to help me raise some equity. And I think you have not only that, but you understand land development and construction. I need help there. Let's work together. And it was just history. Mark, how long ago was that? That was about two years ago now. Okay. What is your role with them today? Today, I'm really responsible for getting the word out about Hearthfire and bringing new people in the door and staying in touch with people who've invested with us and making sure we're staying in touch with them, their needs are met, and they're clear on the updates and what's going on with our projects. And then right now, I am the interim development and entitlements director where I'm working on getting the projects entitled at the local municipal level so that our construction team can take over and get it out of the ground. And for the best ever listeners, can you explain entitlements? Yeah. So entitlements are the official approvals from the city or the county or the local municipality that officially grant you the legal authority to build. And a lot of times people don't understand there's no real school for 
land development entitlements. A lot of times the only people that do it are people who have family that have been in the business or have worked with construction and found themselves doing it by necessity. There's not really any place you can go. You can't go to college for land development and entitlements. And it's done differently in every state and every municipality and every county. So it's hard to really learn. You can go to law school to try to understand it, but even then you don't really understand it until you actually do it. And what's the key to being successful with entitlements? Man, that's a great question. Being passionately curious about who gets things done in that local area. I think so many people want to figure out how, and it's more so about who, because usually there's somebody who everyone else is following in that area. And if that person says yes, everyone else will go along with it. So you have to kind of ascertain who's the right legal partner to have, who's the right civil engineer to have, and then who's the people on the other side of the bench that's going to either approve or deny your request and understand what they need to see in order to feel comfortable with giving you a yes. Yeah. You got to go full CSI and figure out who owns that town, who runs that town, who's second, third, and fourth in charge. And unfortunately, it's super politically driven. They don't want to tell you that, but kind of like an insider's game. But truthfully, land development is super politically driven. And if you're not in with the right political powers who are in power in that particular time in that town, your project's going to get shot down unless it's by right. And even if it is by right, they're still going to give you every ounce of guff that they can. We'll get back to the show with the first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. When it comes to scaling your real estate business, is lack of capital holding you back? Raising private capital on demand can be a major challenge, but you can get the knowledge and tools you need to succeed when you attend Dana Cornell's four-week Raise Capital Masterclass Live. After starting out with no capital or relationships, Dana has raised over $1 billion twice in the past 20 years. And he has made it his mission to share the best of what he's learned with business owners and investors like you. You can learn more at danacornell.com forward slash best ever. Dana's Raise Capital Masterclass Live allows you to immediately unlock and raise capital on demand, drastically increasing your business's growth. If you're ready to take your business to the next level, go to danacornell.com forward slash best ever to enroll today. I'd like to introduce you to my good friends over at PassiveInvesting.com, a private equity real estate firm based out of the Carolinas. PassiveInvesting.com makes it easy for you to start investing in real estate. They focus on acquiring institutional quality apartments and self-storage facilities with private accredited investor funds. They also have a real estate debt fund that offers hard money loans to local fix and flippers across the U.S., which currently has a 0% default rate. With a portfolio of over $700 million in assets and controlling over $250 million in equity, they know how to secure the best deals and how to avoid the red flags. If you are interested in learning more, please reach out directly to PassiveInvesting.com and request the free Passive Investing investor guide that outlines the seven red flags for passive apartment and self-storage investing. Visit PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags to download that PDF now. That's PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags. Mark, give me an example of a story where you got your behind handed to you on an entitlement process and one where you were creative and got a lot of things done. Well, I got my behind handed to me for five years with the first ever land entitlement process that I ever did. Thankfully, it was for my family. So it wasn't like some investor's money that I lost or the at risk money. It ended up being about $35,000, $40,000 in totality. 
but we were trying to get an AutoZone approved. We had a, a site that had some what they call steep slopes, and then it also had this drainage ditch that went in the middle of the site. It was kind of like an L-shaped site. And we found out that in the drainage ditch, it wasn't a regulated wetland, but it's determined by the Corps of Engineers that it's a regulated wetland, the entire site would get ruined. And in a regulated wetland, you can pipe only 100 linear feet. And this site was 300 feet. We would have had to pipe. So it would have completely blown up the entire site. We were going to take it through land development and prove us ourselves. I was like 25, 26 at the time. And I remember saying to my family, I think I'm smart, but I don't think I confidently know this for you to put too much more money behind this here. So we paid for the geotech. We paid for the survey. Everything got done. And we were going out to bid for the site bids. And the engineer at the time that we had, really good person, good human being, wrong engineer partner. They said, hey, yeah, you can put the stormwater management system under the ground. One of the things you always want to understand is where the stormwater is going to go and how much it's going to cost. And when we got the site bids back, the stormwater management facility that can go underground that would make the project possible is going to cost us a quarter million dollars. So that completely threw off the feasibility of the site right there. The stormwater just blew it up. Not to mention the layout of the site was inefficient and it just wasn't going to work. So when we finally looked at the math on the rent we were going to get, we were going to triple net it to an auto zone for like a 20-year lease. When we looked at the math and we looked at the cash we were going to have to put out to get all the development work done, it didn't make sense. And we did what's called a preliminary jurisdictional determination, which is basically when you bring out the local Corps of Engineers to weigh in on whether or not you're wetland. And the Corps said, hey, you don't really want us to give you a ruling on this. Because if they rule it as a wetland, now you're stuck with it as a wetland. No actual wetland above us, no wetland below us, but somehow we're in the middle in a site that drains south and we're going to be the wetland. So five years later, we ended up selling the site to a developer. We only lost 35000 We ended up getting 700000 bucks for it. Luckily, the market cooperated and learned a ton of really, really good lessons that didn't actually end up costing me too much money. Yeah, it sounds like a hell of a learning experience. And best ever listeners, the reason stormwater retention is so important is because now municipalities want you to contain all of your stormwater runoff on your property. They don't want it just running down hill and collecting somewhere. So yeah, that's a big deal, man. And then what those wetland studies are crucial. Well, we had a wetland study done. So that was the thing. We had a wetland study done, opinion was given, and the local borough wanted our product. It was the conservation district in the county that was going to call it. So you have to understand there's your local municipality and then there's the county conservation district. And they're the ones who are really responsible and they coordinate with the DEP for what they call an NPDES permit, which is your disturbance that you're creating as far as your impervious surface and stormwater. And that's when it would have been called out. Interesting. And what's a deal that you got really creative on and won in terms of the powers to be? With respect to entitlements? Yes. So we are in the process right now of going through approvals with a property in LaPorte, Indiana, small town, Northwestern Indiana. And the site that we acquired, it was kind of like a Frankenstein site. It had some nice self-storage units on it that were built as self-storage. And then it had some of these old warehouse and like block buildings that were just kind of ugly and inconsistent with the product fit. So when we acquired this portfolio, this was the one site that nobody wanted to buy. Everyone wanted to exclude it and the sellers wanted to include this site with the portfolio. So we were willing to take on the challenge. There was a piece of landlocked ground that was owned by the city 
that we went to the city and said, hey, look, you guys don't have a use for this and it makes no sense. Let us take it over. And by the way, if you let us take it over, maybe you could consider relinquishing this alleyway in the stub of this street so we can square off the site and get a better product for your community. So we just got the executed purchase and sale agreement to sell us the vacant ground, relinquish the alley and relinquish the stub of the street so we can square the site, get better economies scale on the site for development and provide a better product that the town itself is 100% behind. And did you find somebody and make them think it was their idea? (laughs) I would love to say that I was that smart. But it all comes back to people and understanding how do you find that person locally who gets things done. And what we did, we happened to ask the person who was selling us the facility, who happened to own a couple of facilities, he was a broker as well, said, hey, what attorney gets things done in this county here? And they're like, you got to use this guy. He's the only guy. And when we went to him, he's like, hey, if you really want to get anything done in this county, you got to go to the economic development director because if he's on board, the mayor follows suit and everyone else is in. And that's what we did. We got him on board with the plan and it's all a people game. It's all about the who. Yeah, so important. You have to have the city council and all the right people in the admin section on board, city managers, mayor, the right city council. And you got to figure out if your city council is divided or if they're unified. And you'll find that out by going to one meeting where if there's a lot of passive aggressiveness, you can see there's a demarcation line. There's a this side and a their side. Man, you got to tread lightly and figure out how you're going to play that game, who you have to become really good friends with. Yeah, it's a huge process, man, but it's a necessary evil and good points in finding the right attorney, the right engineer. Usually I try to find an old school architect somebody who's been around for ages and knows everybody because they're the architects seem like the most respected people in the room often. So yeah, all great tips. Yeah. The only thing I'd add to that is just ask the attorney if they know the people who are going to make the decisions or where the biggest stumbling blocks are in order to get your project approved. Because if they can answer that without having to look that up, there's a good chance that that person's going to be someone that you want to work with to get your project over the end line. Great piece of advice. Mark, before you mentioned entitlements, I thought you had a really fun job doing investor relations, but now you brought that up. So let's go back to the fun part of your job. The investor relations, your job is to communicate with existing investors, but also try to lure new investors in, try to educate them, try to get them to invest with your deals. What have you found works well in recruiting new investors? I think the best way to get new investors is just to be transparent. We believe in being fully transparent, open kimono with everything that's going on, good and bad. So just to go back to that project that we're in the process of getting approved where the city sold us the ground, that wasn't in the underwriting. And it wasn't until we got into it and came up with the idea that that's actually that problem, that one thing that was the reason why no one wanted to buy the portfolio actually is going to become the most profitable thing that that could have been done to the entire portfolio. And it was just because people didn't have the vision and the creativity to look at things from a non-conventional lens and come up with a win-win solution that might actually be best for everyone in the end. So when you can go and convey to people some of your creative solutions to work through projects and challenges that other people couldn't see because it wasn't straight down the middle and just let people know, hey, look, Here's our track record. 
here's what we currently have. Here's how we communicate with people on this frequency basis. And here's what you can expect from us. And we pride ourselves in setting expectations and exceeding expectations. And the best sponsors are the ones that do that. Say what you do and do what you say. Yeah. And honestly, set an expectation, but under promise and over deliver. I've lived by that since real estate sales. If I set you up with an expectation that's pie in the sky, and no matter how good of a job I do, I couldn't possibly meet it, then it just leads you to a place of constant disappointment. And honestly, it paints me in a bad light, even though I'm doing a stellar job of executing. Yeah, Mark, I got to share a story. This was years and years ago when I was relatively new in real estate. We were at a doctor's retirement party. And the doctor pulled me aside and said, Ash, you're in real estate. He's like, from time to time, you probably need some capital to invest with you, right? And I said, tell me more. He's like, yeah, well, you know, I'd love to put some money in your deals and invest with you. And I said, what kind of returns are you looking for? He's like, you know, six, 7% would be great. And I'm like, Dr. Go, like we don't touch deals unless they're closer to 20% or above. And he's like, oh, no, 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 that's, that's too good to be true. And he never engaged in another conversation with me again. And I realized that was a big mistake that I made. What's an example of something maybe early on where you learned from a mistake with investors? With investors, I think one of the biggest problems that you can run into is not giving yourself enough cushion because you're trying to go and execute at, I'm going to call it breakneck speed. So K1s are a big one. People are like, yeah, I'll have the K1s out by the middle of February. Don't kid yourself. It doesn't, ha- doesn't happen. God, it takes everything to get it out by the freaking beginning of March. The other thing is investor distributions and turning around quarterly updates and reports. Some people want to have them within one week of a quarter close. And it's like, you're killing your accounting team to get everything processed and get distilled all the way down so it can get to the investor team so that they can go and create the narrative and push it out. So it's really giving yourself enough cushion on the expectation that you're setting so that when an investor does finally get the end result, you've given yourself enough flex that if life circumstances happen, you're not sitting there getting nailed to a cross. Yeah, good advice. Mark, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? If you think that you're going to need, call it $100,000 to do a deal, always underwrite for more. One of the biggest mistakes I see most people make, whether it's syndication, whether you're doing your own deals, bank on a contingency and make it at least 10%. I tell you to go 15%, especially if it's your first deal. I think so many people go in trying to create a deal and they go in undercapitalized and then they get caught. And that's syndicators and individual deal operators alike. Just go in with more money than you think. Give yourself a contingency cushion. I've seen that and I've experienced that. So great advice. Mark, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Let's go. All right, Mark. What's the best ever book you recently read? Psychology of Money, Morgan Housel. What was your big takeaway from that? Expand your return horizon. Don't think that everything has to be in two and three and four and five year return increments. Play the long game. Good advice. Mark, what's the best ever way you like to give back? I run a real estate meetup locally near me where we have younger people come in and we teach them how to buy real estate, how to underwrite real estate, how to source real estate, and then the various aspects around the closing and entitlements process. And Mark, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you? Best way to reach me is investingwithmark.com. Mark is spelled with a K. Mark, I got to thank you for your time today. At 17 years old, you started in maintenance for apartments. 
got into real estate sales and now you're doing a lot of fun work on investor relations and a lot of hard work on entitlements. Thank you for sharing your story and all of your advice today. Absolutely, Ash. Thanks for having me on. Best ever listeners. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share the podcast with someone you think can benefit from it. Also, follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day.